Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of James. The little book of James in the New Testament. As I look out this morning, I see a number of new faces here this morning, and that's great. We started a few weeks ago a, a study going through this little book. It'll take us right up till Christmas. I hope you'll come back and stick around as we go through it. It's a, a marvelous and challenging book as James instructs us about how real faith meets real world. As we come to this particular passage this morning here in James chapter 2 and verses 14 to 26, we come to a passage that has created a lot of heartburn among some people over the centuries. And so it'll be a challenge for us this morning as we study together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father God, thank you for for your goodness to us. For your goodness and grace, your kindness, your mercy. Thank you for blessing us with uncountable blessings. May our hearts, even this morning, give back to you as offerings, uh, thanksgivings for your goodness to us. We pray as we come to your word that our our Minds will be attentive and our hearts will be receptive to what you have for us here. That you will help us as we come to a challenging passage, that you will give us clarity. That we might know what it is that you say so that we might then take it to heart and that we might then put it into practice in our life. So guide the lips of this preacher and guide all of us, Father. Bring us close to you in these moments and speak to us. And may we listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Middle Ages, the Roman church had grown large, grown wealthy, powerful, politically connected, and corrupted. It had become entrenched in many errors and abuses, and those errors and abuses ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. The roots of the Reformation began with men like John Wycliffe in the late 1300s and Jan Hus, who was burned at the stake in 1415. But it would take almost another century plus before the Reformation came to fruition as God raised up men like Martin Luther who posted his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel October 31st, 1517. And men like William Tyndale in England who invested his life in getting the scriptures into English and getting them into the hands of the laity, the every man. And there are so many more 
But this message isn't about the Reformation. You see, among the chief concerns that the Reformers had was the answer to the question, what or who is the authority for Christian belief and Christian practice? Because the Catholic Church said that the authority is the church. But the Reformers were convinced that that was not right. That the authority for faith and practice is the Word of God. And they raised the cry, sola scriptura. Only the scriptures are the authority for what we believe and how we are to live. The Roman church also taught that salvation was begun by believing, by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. But they also said that other things were required to be added to our faith for salvation. Things such as baptism, confession, communion, church attendance, good deeds, and on even paying money to the church or the purchases of indulgences. But the Reformers studied the Scriptures and they pointed out rather loudly and boldly that the teachings and practices of the Catholic Church were contrary to the teachings of Scripture in such matters. For example, they came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Salvation comes through faith, not through works, not through any other works, any works that we do. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. These scriptures and many others are very clear. We are saved only by God's grace through faith, through believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross his, for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, not by any works that we do. And so the reformers cried, sola fide, only faith, only by faith are we saved. These two were probably the greatest, the most significant cries of the Reformation. There are three other solas, but we won't go into those at the moment because, again, they're not the point. Sola scriptura, sola fide. These are still at the core of our Beliefs today as evangelical Protestants. But pastor, why are we in this history lesson? 
as we come here to James chapter 2. And it's because it is here at this point where the heartburn starts. You see, we come to the passage before us here in James chapter 2, and in verse 14 we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then look down to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see the problem? That contradicts what we just said is at the core of our belief. And what it is in contradiction, it appears to the verses which we read earlier from Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. That's our challenge this morning. To dig into this passage, to understand what James is saying, to see if there's any way at all to resolve what appears to be a very great contradiction. So let's go back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James asks, what good is faith without works? The really big question here James is asking is, can faith without works save? To understand James' point, his argument in this passage, it's imperative that we notice a couple of words he uses in this verse. We notice that he says, If a man, if a person, if someone says he has faith. If you have the New International Version in front of you, it says if a man claims he has faith. That's what it is. It's someone says, somebody claims, someone professes. He makes a statement. He says, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm trusting in him. But James goes on to say, He has no works. So he says I'm a follower of Jesus, but he doesn't live like a follower of Jesus. He claims to believe the word of God, but he doesn't do what God says. He is all talk, but no walk. Or to say it as we used to say it down in Texas, he's all hat and no cattle. There's a lot of pretend cowboys down there. (laughs) But they're all hat and no cattle. So it is. He says, that's the first word to notice. He says, he professes, he claims. And then James asks, can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith, faith that is all talk and no walk, That's all hat and no cattle. That is all words and no action, no follow-up, no deeds. Can that kind of faith save? 
And that's an important question to ask. Again, because we believe that we are saved by faith and not by works. So how does all this fit? James gave an answer to that question, can faith without works save? He gives the answer in verses 15 to 19, and he lays out for us three reasons why that kind of faith cannot save. Look at verse 15. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James' first answer, his first reason here to that question, is he gives an illustration. He says, we're sitting here in church one Sunday morning, we're worshiping together, And someone or a family walks in and they are obviously, they are dressed in tattered clothes, ragged clothes, and they are, they're the wrong clothes for today. You see, it was 90 degrees, what, just a week ago? (laughs) And this morning it was 40 something or 40, I think maybe even 39 when I got up this morning. And I don't know what it is out there. I haven't been out since 7.30 this morning outside, but I'm still guessing it's kind of chilly out there. And these folks are wearing clothes that are they're not for the fall. They're summer clothes. But it's obvious that they don't have others. This is all they've got. It's also obvious that they have not eaten well in a good long while. And they have no food in the refrigerator because they don't have a refrigerator because they're living in their 88 Oldsmobile that's out in the parking lot. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ and they come here to worship with us. And we worship together and as we wrap up the service and we go out, so many of you stop and say, Oh, dear brother and sister, welcome. So glad you're here with us today. Go out and be warm and be filled. Bye. See ya. He says, What good is that to these folks? Absolutely nothing. It's worthless, useless. Matter of fact, it's worse than than worthless. It's insulting. We call them dear brother and sister. We act like we're concerned about them. And yet we have plenty and they are destitute and in need and we do nothing to help. That's insulting. James says, in the same way, faith without action is dead. It is Professed faith without action is useless. For all the words that it may have, profession without action helps no one. It is lifeless and dead. James goes on, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James' point here is that faith without action cannot be demonstrated. I'm not sure, but maybe James is from Missouri. The show me state. Because James here is issuing the Missouri challenge. You say you have faith, show me. I double dog dare you to show me your faith without works. Can't do it. 
You can't do it because faith is like the wind. The wind is real and the wind is out there, but we can't see the wind. The only reason we know there's wind is because we feel the effects of the wind on our skin. We see the effects of the wind as it blows the shingles off your roof, your roof if you live in Wentzville. You see, faith is internal. It is inside of us. And the scripture says that no man can know the heart of another man. We can't see into a man's heart. God can, but we cannot. And in order for us to know if someone has faith, James says it has to be seen in the results of what faith does on the inside showing up on the outside. And so James says, here, he says, I will show you my faith by what I do. I challenge you to look at how I live. And when you do, what you will see is my faith being worked out on the outside, being lived on the outside. Faith without action cannot be demonstrated. It cannot be seen. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James says, faith without actions, his third reason here why faith without works cannot save, is he says, faith without action puts you in bad company. No better than demons. The Shema, the great declaration of Israel, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is true theology. It is good theology. What James is saying is you can have great theology that you speak with your mouth. But if it stops there, he says, what difference is that than demons? Demons have great theology. God, they know that God is creator of all. That God is sovereign. They know that God is holy. They know that God became man and lived among us. That he lived a holy, sinless life. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose again from the dead. He's coming again. The demons know all that. They believe all that. They agree with it, at least. And he says they shudder. See, the problem is they know the theology, they know the truth, but they have not embraced the truth. Instead, they have embraced the rebellion of Satan. They rebelled against God. They have acted in disobedience to God. And so it is if we acknowledge the truth, we say, yes, the Bible is the word of God. Yes, Jesus is God who became man. And we go on and we, we, we spout out the truths of the scripture and we say, I believe those, but if it makes absolutely zero difference in our life, James says here, that's like the demons. So James' point here, when he asks the question, can faith without works save? And he says, faith without actions is dead. Faith without actions cannot be demonstrated. And faith without actions puts you in bad company. He says this, 
In essence, you know, you can call anything a duck. You can call this pulpit a duck. You can call a pig a duck. But as the old saying goes, if it doesn't walk like a duck, if it doesn't waddle like a duck, if it doesn't look like a duck, a duck if it doesn't quack like a duck, then it probably ain't a duck. So James says, have you bought my argument yet? Do you need more? Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you need more? All right, let me give you a couple of examples. And so in verses 20 through 25, he gives us some examples. Actually, in verse 20, he just says, let me show you some. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James says, let's look at Abraham. And he takes us back to the book of Genesis and the account of Abraham. And in verse 23 here, James said, he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited, it was counted to him as righteousness. What's interesting is that over in the book of Romans, Chapter 4, the Apostle Paul quotes this same verse from Genesis 15.6. There the Apostle Paul notes that Abraham was justified, he was declared righteous, counted righteous by God because he believed God. And Paul notes that Abraham was justified by his faith not by his works. And so Paul uses Abraham's example to demonstrate that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. But here, James in verse 21, he says that Abraham in verse 21 was justified by his works when he offered Isaac up, his son, on the altar. You remember that story? That story, by the way, in the book of Genesis happens in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 15, God declares Abraham righteous in 15.6. But in Genesis chapter 22, James says Abraham was justified by his works by offering Isaac up on the altar. And he which, by the way, was at least 25 years after Genesis chapter 15. James says here in verse 22 that Abraham's faith was thus, it was in this way, completed by his works. And in verse 24, James says that Abraham's example shows that we are justified by works, not by faith alone. Is your head hurting yet? Are you starting to feel the heartburn here? Because it just seems like Paul and James are at odds with each other. Pastor, you haven't helped the situation. You just made it very clear 
And we've got a problem here. Is the scripture in contradiction with itself? I note, by the way, in verse 23, I notice a little word there. James says that what happened back in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, he says that fulfilled what happened in James 15 when it was credit when Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness. We usually think of that word fulfilled as there was a prophecy made over here back in time and then sometime over here the prophecy came to pass and this event fulfilled the prophecy. The prophecy was made here, an event happened here and it fulfilled it. And that's a legitimate use of the word fulfilled in Scripture but it also is often used in another way. And that is the way if you just take the two words fulfilled and you put them together in this one compound word, if we break them apart... It's to fill with more fullness, to fill with deeper meaning, fuller meaning. Which, by the way, is how James is using this word here. He's saying what, what Abraham did on the altar with his son gives fuller meaning, fuller significance to what happened back in Genesis 15 when God declared Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith. See, here's, the, here's more of the explanation The Greek word that's translated justified here in our text, when James says that Abraham was justified by his works, and when Paul uses back in Romans the word justified in Romans 4, that Greek word justified has two very similar and yet very different meanings. It can be used in two different ways. Both are legitimate. And and we might think when we first look at them that they are the same. But they actually are quite different. You see, one way that word justification can be used. The word justification can mean acquitted. It's really a legal term. You go to court, you're charged with a crime, and the judge or jury acquits you of the crime. They declare that you are innocent. And that is how the Apostle Paul uses the word justification over in Romans chapter 4. On the basis of what Jesus Christ has done, when we place our faith in him, God looks at us and declares us innocent. He declares us righteous. We are justified. But that word justification or justified can have another Use another meaning, and that is demonstrated to be righteous or vindicated. It's different than being innocent in the eyes of the law, declared innocent. It's being declared righteous in the view, in the eyes of the onlookers. I can illustrate it perhaps best with a story from history that to me was not that long ago, but to many of you is like, a million years ago, back when Ronald Reagan was president. See, ancient history. When he was president, he had a labor secretary by the name of Ray Donovan. The justice system, by the way, some people get upset at the, just, at the weaponization of the justice system. May I say it's always been that way? You go back through history, even in the time of the Bibles, go to the day of Daniel. 
the weaponization of the justice system. Well, there were people who tried to take out this man, and they brought charges against him of corruption from before he took the job. And he, for over two years, endured court trials and humiliation and embarrassment in the media as they just destroyed him in the media. However, at the end of it all, he was fully acquitted by a jury of all charges. When he left the courtroom, he was surrounded by reporters, cameras, lights, and someone asked the question, Mr. Donovan, how do you feel? Some of you may remember his answer. He very quietly just said, what office do I go to to get my reputation back? That, my friends, is the difference between acquittal and vindication. Acquittal is innocent in the sight of the law. It is legal justification. Vindication is innocence in the eye of the beholders. It is justification before the people. And that is the difference between how Paul and James are using this term justification. Paul is speaking of it in the sense of acquittal. Like Abraham, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified, declared righteous, we are innocent in God's sight. James is using the word justification as in the sense of vindication, where Abraham, having already been justified by God, declared righteous in God's sight when he believed God, is now demonstrated to be righteous. You see, the the inward righteousness can't be seen by people on the outside, But it is seen when Abraham obeys God even when it makes no sense. Even when it is difficult to do. And God said, go take your son, your only son. and Take him to the mount I will show you and offer him there. And Abraham goes to obey God. And he is justified. He is vindicated, you see. Yes, he really does believe God. We, like Abraham, are demonstrated to be righteous in the sight of God when that righteousness shows up on the outside and people see it in the way we live. James goes on. He uses Rahab as an example. Verse 25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You'll recall the story Rahab was an inhabitant of Jericho. This city and the the people of Israel have come from from Egypt the long way around. It's been 40 years. That's a whole other story. They are now on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And on the western side of the Jordan River, just above the north of the Dead Sea, is the city of Jericho. It is a well-fortified city, and it is the gateway into the promised land. And here are the people of God heading into the promised land. They're camped out there on the other side of the river, over here in Jericho. The people of Jericho know, we find out from what they say, they know that the Israelites are over there. 
They know about who God is, that their God is Yahweh God. They know him by name. They know that Yahweh God rescued the people of Israel out from slavery, took them through the Red Sea, parting the waters, brought them through the wilderness, took care of them through the wilderness, and now has brought them here, and they are about to come into the land, and the people of Jericho are scared to death. They are quaking in their sandals, and Rahab is there. And Rahab understands all that everybody else in town does, but Rahab believes something more. We find out what Rahab believes, and we don't have time for the whole story, but she says this in verse 9, Joshua chapter 2. She says this to the two spies who have come to spy out the land. You know the story, Rahab hides them, protects them, but she says this, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. I know the Lord, Yahweh, knows him by name. He's given this land to you. And she says, I know the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth below. He is the God. He is the sovereign God. And on the basis of that, Rahab takes her life in her hands. She puts her life at risk, protects these these men, sends them out in safety. And Rahab becomes a follower of God. God spares her. She becomes part of the Jewish people. She even ends up in the genealogy, the ancestry of our Lord Jesus. James says her faith, you see, is, is, she is vindicated as a person of faith by the actions she took. Her actions is not what saved her. Her faith saved her. But it is her actions that demonstrate and prove that she is a person of faith who really believed and trusted God. The Bible's clear. There are no works that you or I can do that will earn our salvation. If you're here this morning and you're trying to somehow be good enough or do enough good things, or do the right good things, so that somehow God will be impressed enough with you to let you into heaven, that somehow you do enough good to outweigh the bad things you've done, give up, because it can't happen. Can't be done. We cannot earn our way to heaven, but there's good news. The Bible makes it also very clear that God has stepped in and done what we cannot do. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, in reality, a gift cannot be purchased. If you try to give me a gift and I buy it from you, it's no longer a gift. And the reality is none of us can earn our salvation, but God offers salvation as a gift through Jesus Christ. It's a gift he offers to any who will put their faith and trust in him. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. God wants you to receive this gift, to trust him. If you have questions about what does that mean, how do you do that, I'd love to talk to you. Come talk to me, or I'll point you in the direction of 50 other people here who'd love to sit down and explain, how do you come to put your faith and trust in Jesus and be saved? It's not about what we do. 
It's about where we put our faith, where we put our trust. James doesn't contradict that at all. Not at all. But what he does do is expose the error of those people who somehow think that they are saved because they once mouthed some words or prayed a certain prayer or they mentally agreed, they assented to some facts about Jesus and the Bible. And they claim to be a Christian. They claim to be a follower of Jesus, but they do not actually follow Jesus in their life. They have zero concern about actually doing what God says, living as God's children, following in the footsteps of Jesus. None of that is of concern to them. Brothers and sisters, may I say that churches are full of people like that who claim Jesus, but they live as atheists. We are not saved by works. We are saved solely by believing in Jesus. But James says, as he concludes in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He says, in other words, faith without accompanying deeds isn't real faith. If you claim to believe in Jesus, but it makes zero difference in your life, you don't really believe in Jesus. Real faith shows up in real life. If you're here this morning and that describes you, you claim to be a Christian, but it makes zero difference in your life. May I say what James is saying here are really frightening words. Because as he said earlier in the book, you, you deceive yourself. Real faith shows up in real life. That is, if nothing else, the key message of this little book. One of the reformers put it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. See, the reality is we always live, we act, or we, we typically, I should say, act with what we really believe. Father, these are kind of hard words to say, and I don't mean them as harsh, but it's reality and it's what your word is calling us to examine. For there are people who name the name of Jesus, and that's why James is putting this here, but they, it makes zero difference in their life and it doesn't impact their priorities, it doesn't impact their values, it doesn't impact their goals, it doesn't impact their actions. It doesn't impact their response to culture. It doesn't impact their entertainment. It doesn't impact anything. And James says the person who thinks they have faith, but that's who they are and how they live, they have no faith at all. It's, that's a useless faith it's not, because it's not real faith. Real faith shows up in real life. Father, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice has understood several things this morning. There is a creator God who loves them. He loves them so much. He, he became one of us to die in our place, to take the price of our sins so that we can be saved from sin and have everlasting life. 
We don't earn it, but we can receive it as a gift through faith. And that they would put their faith in Jesus. And that, Father, not a person in the sound of my voice will play games and pretend faith, have lip faith, faith that's all hat and no cattle. So, Father, may we live out the reality of a relationship with you this week. And may it make such a difference in who we are and how we live that it is obvious to people around us that we're connected to you. We're one of your children because of our faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.